Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Our text for our sermon is the gospel history according to St. Mark as recorded in chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. To remind you of that account, I will read the first five verses. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they could go and anoint Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week at sunrise, they went to the tomb. They were saying to each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb for us? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. This is the gospel of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what is bothering you today? What issues are really nagging at you in life? What dilemma is facing you that you just can't seem to get resolved? Those ladies faced that dilemma. First of all, the one they trusted to be the Messiah gets railroaded in a kangaroo court and he appears to be murdered. Then, the Lord's Sabbath, which he instituted, which was a law. It was the Sabbath day the next day, so his body was hastily thrown into the tomb and hastily prepared, but they couldn't do anything until the Sabbath was over. Now, the Sabbath would be over Saturday night after the sun had set, and the shops at that time would open for about one hour. So they were able to buy the spices. But they still weren't able to do culturally what was right for a body at that time. And they wanted to honor Jesus. They thought he was the Messiah, and he was. So all these things are in the way. Even rules God had established for the nation. They couldn't, they had this dilemma in trying to get the body ready just to show respect for someone who had showed them so much love. And as they walked to the tomb, they got another dilemma. The stone that was rolled in, that, in the way, that was a very heavy stone in a V-groove. And while it would be easier to roll it into place, it would be much harder to roll it out of place. And it seems that they didn't know what you and I know. The Sanhedrin had gone to Pilate and said, Oh, that deceiver had said he's going to rise again. So secure up his grave so that nobody can steal his body and claim he's risen. And so there was a detachment of Roman guards there. Those women didn't even know that their lives may be in danger. So as they begin to wonder, how are we going to get into the tomb? Who's going to roll the stone away? Look at how that empty tomb, how Christ's resurrection had completely resolved that dilemma. And so today, and as we look at our sermon text, we see the empty tomb resolves all our dilemmas. And when they get there, the things they had been worrying about suddenly seemed like nothing. They thought Jesus had been murdered. And what do they see? Instead, they see a young man. That's an angel uh, appearing as a young man. And they're terrified. So he says to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you. Jesus had told them this time and time again. In fact, recall when he makes the long journey into Jerusalem. He took his time getting there because he had a lot of message he wanted to preach to the people on the way. He had told the disciples. He began that journey by saying, 
we're going to Jerusalem where I'm going to be betrayed and handed over to the Sanhedrin and I'll be killed and I'll rise on the third day. And what does Peter, the kind of the spokesman for the disciples do? He didn't want to hear that. He rebuked the Lord. And Jesus has to rebuke him back and say, get thee behind me, Satan. So it shouldn't have been a surprise to the disciples or to these women at all. Oh, yes. And when he cleared out the temple during Holy Week, because all the money changers there in the temple, they asked him, by whose authority do you do this? And he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And we're told he was talking about his body. And then when when he appears in that kangaroo court trial before the Sanhedrin, that was one of the things that they got brought against him. And and the people who were witnesses had kind of lied about it. But it was what he had said. So this should have been no surprise. He had said so. And he even said, had told the disciples, and when I rise, I will meet you in Galilee. But you know, Jesus isn't the only one who said it. And he is the spokesman for the Trinity. John begins his gospel calling him the Logos. So usually when God speaks, that's Christ talking. Before Christ took on human flesh, that's Christ talking. And and so whenever something is recorded in Scripture, that's usually Christ talking to you. So let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah 52 and 53 are some of the clearest words of Jesus' death and resurrection for us, written 700 years before Christ was born. Or Psalm 22, written by King David, a thousand years before Christ was born. A thousand years, and and that gives us the clearest picture of the pain and agony Christ suffered on the cross. God's word time and time again proves to be reliable. And that's a comfort for you. I don't have cable anymore, but in the years I had cable, I noticed especially National Geographic and the Discovery Channel, every year around Easter used to, used to run something. that They'd found something that was going to disprove the Bible. I remember the big one. My senior year at the seminary was they'd found another gospel of the Bible, and it was no gospel. It was a cult book, book that came out of Gnosticism that was called the Gospel of Judas. And way back around 150 A.D., uh, Ignatius had wrote against it, showing how clearly it was not a book of the Bible. But you live in a world where the devil is working to... What he wants you to do is not to believe God's Word. And the biggest thing he doesn't want you to believe in God's Word is that your sins are forgiven. Because if your sins are forgiven, you can come before the Lord and you can bring your sins to Him and He washes them away. No shame. No need to be afraid. God's Word also tells us that Adam and Eve fell into sin and so each of us has original sin, is what we call it. And the devil doesn't want you to believe that either. He doesn't want you to believe that you have a sinful nature. He wants you to believe that you're morally neutral at worst and good at best. And he wants you to be confused what sin is. The result of sin is things like stealing and that. So he wants you to confuse that with having a sinful nature, which means you're not holy in God's eyes. He doesn't want you to believe that you are sinner because then you don't see a need for a savior. But when God's holy law points out how we are unholy, then it prepares our hearts so that we can hear that God, through that empty tomb, through that cross, has made you holy. The empty tomb and Christ's cross resolve all of our dilemmas. The biggest one is it validates God's word. It shows you time and time again, 
Every time there's something people claim, oh, we've disproven the word of God, you turn around and you find out that they are wrong. It always works out that way. And that's a comfort for us so that when you hear the promises of God's word, you can say, amen, those are for me. And so Jesus said, everyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. So you can say, I believe, I've been baptized, I'm saved, amen, this is the truth. Because the devil will throw his lies at you. But when God's word is validated to you, you, you say, I'm going to put my money on that. I know that's what's going on, and I know that's for me. And again, that angel has to tell them, don't be alarmed. They're standing, everything here is shocking, and they're standing before a holy being. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Jesus' resurrection, as we learn in our epistle lesson today in 1 Corinthians, is our resurrection. He rose from that grave, but when you hear the message that Jesus has risen, that your sins are forgiven because of him, the Holy Spirit enters your heart and gives you faith. And the minute you have faith, you are eternally alive. You are united with Christ. So while we have that sinful nature, you now have a new nature that is holy, that is connected to Christ, that is eternally alive, that is never going to die. And as we again learned in our epistle lesson, because that new nature is never going to die, Christ is the first fruits. And so although your body may die, when Christ returns, he will raise up your body and he will give you a glorified body and he will give you the new heavens and the new earth. What does this mean for you? It means that empty tomb resolves all your dilemmas because you are eternally alive. Now, I remember when I was a kid in elementary school counting down the days till the end of the school year and they just seemed like they were going to take forever. And now I'm an adult and it seems like life just comes flashing before my eyes faster than I can blink. If you are eternally alive, what, what's your life going to be here on this earth? Most people make it to 80 anymore. A few to 100. But compare that to eternity. Eternity, 80 years is going to be nothing. So even if you have a miserable life, if your life is like what Job had for a few years, ongoing, if your life is as miserable as the poor man in the account of Lazarus, the poor man, it doesn't matter when you compare that to all eternity because you can say, I'm going to get the new heavens and the new earth. I'm going to get a glorified body. I, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 25, am going to eternally be at the Lord's feast and banquet. It changes our perspective. Those things that are bothering us in life. I have a disease. I have a sickness. I have a worry about my friends. Uh, the, the economy's gone bad. I'm worried about my account. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. No big deal. Because I'm eternally alive. These things will pass in the blink of an eye. I'm, and because you're eternally alive and because you are connected to Christ, you can be confident that he's ruling over all things for your well-being. Romans chapter 8 tells us, In all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called for this purpose. So it resolves all of those dilemmas when you look at it in the view of all eternity. Lastly, we're told, they went and hurried away from the tomb, trembling and perplexed. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, as the events would go on throughout that day, uh, they would start losing their fear and start to tell people. But their initial response should have been great joy, and instead it was 
fear. But God was going to use that as well. Look at how the whole passion history, uh, if you've been going to our midweek services and that, how the betrayal of Judas and everything else, how it all served to prepare Jesus to be placed on the New Testament altar of the cross so that he would be your substitute and die for you and rise for you. Everything served that. And believe it or not, he makes everything in your life serve that purpose that he has saved you. I can tell you if it weren't for crosses I bore in my life, I would not be in this pulpit proclaiming the word of God to you today. Yes, he used misery in my life to put the desire to share the joy of his word with you. And he does the same with you. And what about, what about that neighbor that you missed the opportunity to witness to? The women were supposed to go out and say, Great news, everybody! Not I've saved a bundle on Geico. I've saved a bundle in all eternity. I'm saved and so are you. The tomb is empty. But they were afraid. But God still worked. He still made it happen. So we get to see that when we have those opportunities to proclaim and we screw it up, it's okay. It's not something God demands of us. It's a privilege he gives us to share. And he'll bring that message to others. And he uses our neighbors' lives. He uses the miseries in their lives. And he uses the hardships in your life so that you can be one of the persons with the privilege to say, it's okay, the empty tomb's going to resolve that dilemma. Yes, for some of us, God gives us harder crosses or different crosses than others. But we can be confident that he's ruled over all time in history to bring you to faith so that he can give you all time in history and eternity. Christ on the cross is showing you a payment, a payment for your and my sins, a ransoming us from slavery to sin, death and the devil. The empty cross tells us it's been paid. The empty tomb assures you it's now yours. And so we see that empty tomb resolves all our dilemmas. It validates God's word. You can take the promises of God's word and say those are meant specifically for me. It assures you the biggest promise is it is eternal life because it gives you life, it gives you forgiveness, assures you the resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth, and it shows all things serve the resurrection and God is ruling in your life to make sure that you end up safely on the day when he returns so that he can give you that glorified body. Amen. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.